All right. Good evening, everyone. Thank you very much for coming. We'll continue with a discussion of the uh, 93rd Anucheta of Srila Jiva Goswami's Paramatma Sandarbha. Um, in the last discussion, we talked about the special nature of the Lord's showing favor to the devotees and that his showing favor to the to his devotees does not necessarily show a favoritism um, as we would view it materially. It was an interesting subject. Bhakti exists both for Bhakti as well as for Bhagavan. So Bhakti is that common thread and Sri Jiva Goswami explained that in that section of this 93rd Anucheda that the fact that the Supreme Lord appears to show a partiality or a favoritism to the devotee doesn't mean that he's partial because that quality of bhakti is part of his intrinsic nature. The Lord has unlimited shaktis and of course he has those shaktis that are relative to his own swarup. We call that the swarup shakti, the nature of his own being. In his own being, which is the manifest which is manifested in the transcendental realm, there's three primary attributes. Just like we have three primary attributes, Sat, Chit, and Ananda. So in the material realm, if we were to, irrespective of any transcendental, and here when I say transcendental, I'm referring to any ingress of bhakti or any any contact with a with that superlative nature of the Lord's love, the love that he exchanges with his devotees, irrespective of that, we ourselves have the characteristics of Sat, Chit, and Ananda. And if we were to completely detach ourselves through our own efforts of discipline, and there's many disciplines in the world whereby, whereby one can purify their existence. We can purify our bodily existence by eating well, by engaging in, in yoga, by controlling the body and the mind to such an extent that there's, there's, there's certain potencies in the body themselves which the yogi can can raise through the various chakras of the body. So it's 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 a it's a it's a strict discipline and it's hard for us to even conceive of the rigors of such a discipline to actually experience the the absolute nature of our conscious being because of the influence of the age that we live in. 
the yogis that master their body and mind, they generally, it takes longer than the short period of time that this age affords the human form of life. Few of us will make it to a hundred. That would be the exception. But these yoga disciplines, these yogis, they, they sometimes require hundreds of years to perfect these, such a discipline. So, irrespective of the ingress of some of the Lord's internal potencies or His spiritual nature, which comes through the agency of His devotees, or through His advents, His descents, His avataric descents coming down, um, one can have some other ingress of spiritual energy over and above the potentiality that we hold in and of ourselves if we were to take to a certain discipline and a change in lifestyle that would allow us to remove ourselves from the grip of material existence. The chokehold that material life has around us now basically leading us from one sense object to the next, especially in Kali Yuga. We're, we're basically seen as being drugged from one place to the other, from one sense to the other. We're simply going, oh, I want to become this, I want to become that, I want to enjoy this, I want to enjoy that. We just, our mind and the senses and the environment contribute to a whirlwind of of com continual desire and fulfillment. So if we were to say, I'm tired of this in and of ourselves, I'm just tired of this. I'm going to do something about it. I'm not going to be drug around by my mind and senses anymore. Let me, let me make a change. What would first of all be a, a what do they call it, a sea change, something that's just gigantic. A gigantic change in the way one would live. Imagine the discipline to just walk away from the world, to go into the woods, to refuse to be pulled into the day-to-day -day hustle and bustle of material life. I'm not going to, I'm going to, what do they say? We're going to unplug from the we're going to unplug from whatever it is. We're going to unplug. We're going to go off the grid. That's the word I was looking for. Yeah, I'm, we're going to unplug from the grid. How long could you make it in the woods? Well, depend on how many merit badges you had earned earlier in life to at least give you some, some, some standing where you could at least survive a couple evenings, but then you then to control the mind, how much you might be able to live alone for a couple weeks, a month, a couple months, three months, six months, a year, without any social interaction. And I mean, basically, this point is satchitananda, but there's also besides the sat chit and ananda, the existence 
we know we exist. Well, then we have knowledge, chit, sat chit, ananda. And if we could unplug enough, we would experience some self-satisfaction, which, well, in comparison to what material life gives us, we'd be happy. We really would. We would be, we'd be blissful in and of ourselves if we could unplug that much and just have that much contentment in just our own being compared to material life, we'd call it ananda. That's available up to that point. Well, the Lord also has that in his transcendental realm. It's a sarup shakti. It also has those three components. But in the transcendental realm, those three components are sandini, samvit, and ladini. So they're they're all transcendental components of his Swarup Shakti. And of those transcendental components, the Hladini Shakti or the Ananda portion, the loving portion of that, uh, is exemplified in Bhakti. So of his Swarup Shakti, of the three main shaktis, main ingredients of his Satchitananda, his ananda is the topmost. And of his topmost ananda, as Jiva Goswami pointed out in this Anacheda, of his ananda, bhakti stands supreme. So this exchange the ability to exchange loving affairs or a reciprocation of appreciation. So this bhakti comes in different flavors, unlimited flavors of bhakti and mixtures of bhakti. But there's primary ingredients and those primary exchanges of of love with the Lord are either a reverential appreciation, plain, santa, ras, das, dasya ras, some servitude, uh, going up to fraternal affection, some loving love of friends and, fr- and friendship, uh, paternal affection, and familial affection, and conjugal affection, maduria ras. These are, as I said, they're, they're unlimited manifestations of these loving reciprocations. So what Jiva was pointing out was the Lord showing, coming, first of all, coming into the material world at all. Even the manifestation of the material world. Jiva attributes all that to wanting to engage with his bhaktas. From the manifestation of the material world to his advents in the material world in various incarnations. He attributes that, all of that, exclusively to a desire to exchange bhakti. But that bhakti is part of his spiritual potency, 
It's not part of our, it's not a potency that we have. It's part of his swarup shakti. It's not part of our intrinsic nature. It's something that we can acquire through his grace. And he extends that grace generally for the most part in the greatest majority of instances through his devotees. So we come into contact with that portion of his Ladini Shakti, which is a portion of his Swarup Shakti, through his devotees, through those that already have some acquaintance with and some involvement in a loving reciprocation with the Lord. And that loving reciprocation even exists from the beginning of our having that opportunity afforded us through that sadhu association, that devotee association. In the beginning, it may not be ripe. In the beginning, it may, the involvement even in the angas of bhakti may not be something that we recognize internally. And we may have a hard time recognizing it externally. It may taste bitter. The analogy is there. It's, I'm, at least in this life, not experienced jaundice, but I've heard that when you get jaundice, your sugar doesn't, I can't imagine sugar not being sweet. I would, I don't know what I would do. So Krishna's been very kind to me. Should knock on something, right? <laughs> but if you, if you do experience a jaundice condition, sugar apparently becomes very bitter. But it doesn't mean that the intrinsic character of sugar has changed your perspective has been changed by your disease. So the sadhus use that as, a, as an example for us. We are diseased and we can't taste spiritual exchange. We can't taste the sweetness of spiritual life. So therefore, in the beginning, due to our disease of material attachment, then our taste buds are not functioning, our spiritual taste buds are not yet functioning. And therefore, the sweetness of seeing the Lord's form, associating with devotees, hearing scripture, engaging in chanting, hear, all the ungas made themselves seem like a bitter medicine. But because the devotees are so kind in their dispensation, because they extend that kindness to us, that in and of itself, which is called the seed of bhakti, kind of gives us some impetus to stick with the taking of the medicine. And as the medicine, luckily there's prashadam to help the medicine go down, <laughs> so that sometimes in and of itself carries us from one day to the next. <laughs> and... Eventually, what is 
the bitterness of a medicine of bhakti, specifically with chanting or chanting and hearing, that we actually will notice as time goes on and we practice that what was once medicine now becomes our sustenance and we recognize it as sustenance. We can't live without the hearing and the chanting. Shravanam, Kirtanam, Vishnu. And then, then we come into a stage of, of steadiness in practice called Nista. What Jeeva's trying to actually pull out here, which is the fact that there's no real partiality here. The Lord is interacting with the bhakti in his bhaktas, which is part of his nature. So there's no, it's not a favoritism. It's just the Lord. This is the Lord's internal potency. And it's not different from him, his very self. Now, though, there was one thing mentioned in the commentary of this particular subsection of the 93rd Anacheda uh, that I wanted to share before we go on to the next subsection this evening. And this is from the Krama Samdarbha. So there's six Samdarbhas, and then there is the Krama Samdarbha. Krama means chronological. So Jiva takes all of his commentary from the Samdarbhas, and he puts those commentaries or those explanations of the Bhagavatam verses that he used to substantiate the different sections in his Anachetas that made up the whole presentation of Sambandha, Abhideya, and Prayojan um, chronologically in the order of the verses in the Bhagavatam. And he also commented on some Bhagavatam verses uh, more extensively that he didn't even use in his Sandarbhas proper, the six Sandarbhas proper. So that's another presentation. But for the most part, it's 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 all covered in the six Sandarbhas. But there's one thing in the Krama Sandarbha, which was which is brought out in the commentary here, which I want to share with you. Again, it's some Sanskrit terminology, but I think it'll help us understand a little more deeply this this nature of. Uh, the Lord's internal potencies. So it, say, it reads as follows. In Krama Sandarbha, Shijiva Goswami writes that the bliss of Bhagavan is of two types. So we were, ta we're talking about his bliss, which is his Ladini Shakti. So it's of two types, Jiva Goswami says. Namely, Swarupananda, that belonging to his intrinsic nature, he's satisfied in himself. He himself is, is full. Of, his whole nature is blissfulness. He's, he gets even if he sees his reflection. He gets he's he's thrilled to see his own reflection. You know, so he's self-satisfied. Of course, he's God, so everything about him is 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 condensed joyfulness, and blissfulness. So. His Sladini Shakti is of two types. Swarupananda is self-satisfied in his own intrinsic nature. And Swarup Satyananda 
that belonging to his intrinsic potency, that belonging to his intrinsic nature, and that belonging to his intrinsic potency. So, two things. The Haladini Shakti is basically manifesting as Swarupananda, it's part of his intrinsic nature, and Swarup Sakyananda, or Shakti, Shakyananda, his intrinsic potency. So, two kinds of blissfulness. Out of these, the second is superior to the first. So the Shakti of his blissfulness is, is superior to his intrinsic, self-satisfied blissfulness. That blissful energy is, is more, is superior to his internal self-blissfulness is what Jiva is saying. The second is further divided into two types called Manasana Nanda, Manasananda, that which pervades the psychic or mental quantum, and Aishvaryananda, that related to the opulence or majesty of Bhagavan. The first of these pertains to his devotees. So Manasananda, that Manasananda, that, that psychic excitement that his Swarup facilitates in the devotees is... Is, is part of that Shakti, that Ananda Shakti. The second of the verses spoken by Bhagavan Vishnu implies that the bliss of his loving exchanges with his devotees is superior both to Swarupananda as well as Asvaryananda. How superior is it? It's superior enough to make the Supreme Lord himself want to taste it. God is God, so he can't taste generally the way his devotees feel for him. Even we don't know, we could only infer the way someone feels about us in a loving relationship. We don't know what they really experience when they're around us. What around us thrills them? What things that we do that they really, really appreciate? What things that we say that really stimulate their inner feelings of love for us. Krishna also doesn't know that generally, but he can. But he, he generally doesn't, so therefore it's Krishna in what we call existential crisis. He doesn't know. 
He knows a lot about blissfulness and he knows how blissful he feels being around his devotees, but he doesn't know how blissful his devotees feel around him. And of all those devotees, the one that he knows gives him the most pleasure is Srimati Radharani. So he wonders, what she see in me? What she feels? How, what, what feelings that she has for me, really, what's that like? So therefore he, he decides he's going to explore that. And in order to fully make that exploration, he manifests as Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. So it's a very, very... The internal reasons for the Lord's descent as Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu is pretty intimate stuff. He wants to know, I want to know how she feels. What what's her love for me like? And that is the advent of Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. Now, his example in wanting to taste that, of course, is one of the perfect sadhaka. So if he wants to taste what a devotee, what his devotee tastes in him, well, he's going to have to become a perfect devotee. So he advents as Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu and gives us the example of what and how the perfect devotee is. In what? In the perfect association of his other devotees. So he's coming and he's, a, he's giving us an example of how to be a devotee and how to interact with devotees. So the Lord doesn't come alone. But he's coming with, in all of his manifestations with all of his devotees who finally figure out what's going on and they have to write books about who's who and what, what's what and correspond the Lord's manifestation in his own transcendental abode and how that manifestation has become the association of Gaudiya Vaishnavas. In the second of the verses spoken by Bhagavan Vishnu, it implies that the bliss of his loving exchanges with his devotees is superior both to Swarupananda, that Ananda that he experiences in and of his own nature, as well as Asvaryananda, the bliss that is experienced as his Shakti is manifested and appreciated by others. So there's the internal pleasure which some devotees appreciate more the loving exchange the exchange as a lover as a parent as a friend and then there's also 
the appreciation of the Lord's unlimited opulences. We call that the Vaikuntha atmosphere. So the devotees, they very much, there's devotees that very much appreciate that. They, they like to serve the Lord in, in, that, in that opulence of his, of his blissful energies. So they have the most blissful of environments. So the Lakshmi Narayan, everything's just, you know. But the more intimate is the emotional exchange. He asserts that without his devotees, he does not covet his own self or his opulence. In the verse that follows, he states the reason for this. These devotees have sacrificed everything for him. Bhagavan is not ungrateful, and so he cannot afford to forget his devotees. Remember, all these, all these uh, intimate details are being taken from the discourse between Vishnu and Dorvas. That the Lord's trying to explain, you don't understand, how can I, you need to understand something here. The love between Maharaj Ambarish and myself goes very, very deep. So, I'm not really going to get involved here in whatever little skirmish you're having with him. And there's a reason for that. Because he's my devotee. And this is the way our love is so deep that I don't get involved in, 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 in any skirmish between one devotee and another, generally speaking. And we find this brought out repeatedly in Sri Chaitanya Mahaprabhu's Leela. There's certain verses in both the Chaitanya Bhagavat and the Chaitanya Charitamrita that bring out this. Don't go there. Even as devotees, we generally don't step in when there's some argument because we have that much love and respect for both both devotees. So therefore, the implication of all this is that Bhagavan acts only for the sake of his devotees. It's quite a profound statement. Even the acts of creation and so on are undertakes a undertaken simply for them. So that's kind of a little deeper review of what we went over last week. Now we'll move on to the next subsection. Bhagavan has no experience of material misery. There's a lot here our full appreciation for the fact that the Lord's self-satisfied. And also, it plays into the fact that he does not, he's not really showing a partiality 
to his devotees, but it's strictly on the transcendental plane, even when, for all intents and purposes, our viewpoint would lead us to believe that it certainly seems like the Lord is intervening to alleviate a material situation for the benefit of his devotees. Especially when we look to the Lord's intervention on behalf of the, of the demigods. So Jiva continues in his discourse. Regards, in regards to the second objection, that the Lord is subject to favoritism, we say the following. One engages in giving delight to others for two possible reasons. To attain what one desires from the other, or sometimes just to fulfill the other's desire. The first opinion is not relevant to the objection raised here. Because when one acts for one's own interest alone, there is no question of partiality whatsoever. I'm not showing favor to somebody when I'm engaged with them and really it's just for my own self-satisfaction. So you can't say that I'm being partial when in reality I'm just being selfish. It may look like I'm, you know, but what's, what's my intent? What do I want out of it? If what I want out of it is more than selfless, a selfless giving of myself in any exchange, then there's, there's no partiality there. Because if I could get the same satisfaction from somebody else in another situation, I may go there. The first option is not relevant to the objection raised here because when one acts for one's own self-interest, I'll say anything to, to enjoy your, to take advantage of you, then there's no question of partiality because I'm only being, uh, only interested in my own uh, satisfaction towards others since one's concern would then be only for oneself. In the second case, the desire to engage in acts favorable to another arises only after experiencing firsthand their happiness and misery, not merely by some general awareness of it. This is because there is no possibility of the heart undergoing a transformation in the form of compassion without having been touched by another's pain. That's, it's, there's a psychological thing there, empathy, that you're not, you're not really going to, to, to be partial to helping someone unless there's some real compassion there. And our compassion comes from the fact that we have suffered and we can relate to another's suffering and therefore we can engage in acts to relieve that suffering. And that is a partiality based on a true desire 
and a selflessness on our part. So there's a verse from the 10th canto where this is brought out from the 10th chapter, 10th canto, 14th verse. One whose foot has been pricked by a thorn would not desire others to suffer such agony, having understood the sameness of all living beings through external signs, but not a person who has never been so pricked. We're going into some really deep understanding here because this understanding of the Lord, the nature of the Lord's compassion, because if the Lord really, what Jiva comes to here, what we're, going, we're working up to a point where Jiva's going to say, if the Lord knew the extent to which we suffer in material existence, there would be no material world. It's an interesting subject. It brings out what is the, what's the true nature of bhakti and what's the true nature. What, where did we come to last week? The Lord is truly, he has no involvement with the gunas of material nature. What's it mean to be self-satisfied? What's it mean to be detached? How is the Lord detached? And how is he not detached? And how to, how to navigate this minefield in order to arrive at the proper conception? Because so many other conceptions can come up. Well, so we need this knowledge is, is very crucial to a deeper and more nourishing understanding of the nature of bhakti. Because we now have the opportunity to experience firsthand bhakti. We've give, been given that opportunity. Now how to best take advantage of it ourselves and how to best make it available to others, and why we should engage in making it available to others, becomes fully revealed in these kind of in-depth explorations as Jiva's bringing forth. Otherwise, we can get into a thing of where, well, it's the blame game. We can become the victim. Oh, we're the victim. We're the victim of God's wrath. People arrive at that conclusion. My mother in this very life arrived at that conclusion and just turned God off like a switch. Her husband died. My father died. I was six months old. Switches off. I'm done. There's no God. He wants to treat me like this, then I... These, these are the kind of things that, that make it important for us to know bhakti, to know how the Lord works in the world, to know how we can have a relationship with Him that's meaningful over and above the superficial that we sometimes put all of our emphasis on like it's all about me and I'm the victim of but what are you the victim of 
You're the victim of the circumstances that you've created for yourself by your prior actions. Are you willing to step up to the plate and admit that? That's spiritual understanding. Therefore, for Bhagavan. So now we've just talked about this verse from the 10th canto about being pricked. You know, if you haven't been pricked by a thorn, then how can you have some compassion for someone and say, I don't want you to suffer like this. Therefore, for Bhagavan, who is an eternal form of supreme bliss and is ever free from sin, there is no experience of the material misery called pleasure or of that which is commonly known as misery. He has no experience. He's, he's bliss personified. So this, these things don't come into his experience. Jiva's going to say, is this a fault? Just as there is a complete absence of darkness in light or of an owl's capacity to see the sun. So do we fault the sun because the sun has never experienced darkness? Is that fair on our part? Is basically what Jiva's saying. We don't because... The nature of the sun is total and absolute illumination wherever wherever it it is. There's light, there's heat. I mean the sun doesn't experience darkness nor the cold. Is that a fault of the sun that it doesn't experience that? Interesting question. Or do we fault the sun because the owl doesn't see the light? I guess in the daytime the owl keeps his eyes closed. That's the point being made. Jiva Goswami continues. Practically all that we're going to read for a couple, three evenings here is all Jiva's Anacheda. He gives a very extensive commentary himself, so we won't need to even rely on a commentary here. Some, although desiring to deny the relation with misery in Bhagavan, speak in the following way. There is knowledge of the experience of misery in God, yet that knowledge is of the misery experienced by others and not his own misery. Such an explanation hour, however, is like finding oneself face to face with a toll man at the river crossing in the morning after taking a roundabout path throughout the night to avoid him. <laughs> the very same problem still exists. So, you can try to walk around this. As Jeeva saying, oh, come on now. You could try to walk around this some way with some logical explanation, just like you might try to find a path whereby you can avoid the, the tollman in the road. But after you've done all that gymnastics, you're just going to come back to the same conclusion. The Lord is full of bliss. 
He doesn't experience misery. It's not, it's nothing that he can experience, just as the sun cannot experience darkness. It's not possible. So you've got to do all this. You can go all these different ways, but you're going to come and the Tolman's still going to be there and you're going to have to confront the reality of the situation. God does not experience material misery or pleasure. It's not it's not it's not going to happen it doesn't happen this is profound stuff here we're talking because we're going to go on and we'll see well what about his omniscience such an explanation out however is finding oneself face to face all right uh, the experience of misery misery verily means that such mystery t- misery touches the heart if somebody's experiencing misery, it's affecting them. Whether such contact comes from one's own misery or from that of another, because there is no distinction as to whether the heart's relation with misery arises from one's own suffering or that of another. We see it sometimes. We'll see some, some situ- we'll see somebody else in pain and that We'll experience their pain just due to our empathetic nature. They've lost a loved one or they're they're in some mortal danger or whatever. They can even be a you know, a piece of celluloid going through a projector on a screen and we're like, Oh my god But we can feel other pe we can experience other people's pain. So a little something from the commentary that I copied and pasted up here. Feelings of pain and pleasure are modifications of the chitta, which is an evolute of prakriti. Bhagavan is beyond any tinge of maya as established earlier. Therefore, he cannot be touched by any material misery and so cannot feel the pain of others in his heart and be aroused to compassion. As such, there is no possibility of his being biased. He knows such suffering through the experience of others, not directly. This also means that he is not impelled by compassion, because to be compassionate, the pain of another has to touch one's own heart. Thank you so much for your association.